It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's another weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Broering. Each week we take a, a look at uh, topics of local interest, some national topics, maybe even a wacky story or two, and... We'll start our tour of college football camps. Chad Brendel from Bearcat Journal will join us to talk how UC has been doing so far at Camp Higher Ground, the early stages of their camp, although their kickoff for their first game is about three weeks away against UCLA. As always, this podcast presented by Joseph Chevrolet. Rick? Yeah, we'll get to some college football talk, Skinny, but first, the Reds picked up their third straight win Tuesday night, 8-4 to four over the Angels at Great American Ballpark. They have now won or tied in each of their last five series, and sit six and a half games back of Chicago heading to a four-game series at home against the Cubs. My question for you is, what has caught your attention during the Reds' recent successful stretch? Dave, I think one different ways. You've gotten some good starting pitching. You've been gritty in a, in a game or two. You had a game on Tuesday where you got down three to nothing and quickly bounced back in the bottom of the first by answering those three runs and then um, you know building a lead. I, I think a little bit of it now, not just th- this stretch, but... As you move forward, there's really not a night where you're at a big disadvantage on the mound. Maybe not even a disadvantage any night. I I can argue if if they throw their ace against Anthony DiSclefani, maybe. But for the most part, I feel really good all five times through the rotation that you got a guy that's got a chance to give you a good start. Do I think Aristides Aquino is going to continue to to hit the way he's hitting? I don't know, but it's kind of fun to to watch a kid come up and do this. Um, It's given maybe Phil Irvin a chance to get some more at-bats. It's going to give Josh Van Meter a chance to get some more at-bats. Tucker Barnhart's starting to swing the bat a little bit. It's been fun, and and for some of the hand-wringing over some of the trade deadline moves that were made, I don't think they've skipped a beat. I really don't, and I I, I think they've, they've made their ball club Overall, a team that's got a shot here down the stretch just because of what you can do pitching-wise. How about you? Yeah, I think the the pitching is a great point, but at the same time, I think when you look at how they've won a lot of these games, the offense has woken up to a certain extent. And, uh, of course, for me, the thing that has stuck out, you mentioned him, is two words, the punisher, Aristides Aquino. I mean, the way he is swinging the bat, his power for – he has a weird-looking swing – he almost reminds you, uh, he doesn't look anything like him, but in terms of how he plays the game, he's almost like Willie Mo Pena, just complete raw power, but he runs well. He has a plus arm out in the outfield. Um, he's hitting 438 with two homers and five RBIs so far after 16 at-bats. I mean, it's obviously a, a very, very, very small sample size, but... I mean, maybe Jay Bruce was the last guy I remember coming up and kind of giving us this the, the wow, excitement yeah. in the first couple of weeks. Now, I know he had an at-bat or two last year um, at the end of the season. but I think he had one. Yeah, one at-bat. So, the, you know, but I don't think anyone really remembers that. So this is a pretty exciting little stretch for for a team that felt like they were kind of done there after yeah. the All-Star break. Yeah. They lost three series in a row. They come. Now they've won or tied in the last five. It's a nice little uh, spark, I think. I mean, you win this series against the Cubs. It's still an if, but you win it. You go three and one. I'm, I you can't expect a sweep. But if you win this series, you're four and a half back with a lot of time left to play with. And again, the fact that each night out, it's not like, oh boy, Jim's starting tonight. Fred's starting tonight. No, it's, hey, we got Castillo tonight. Oh, it's Sonny Gray tonight. Oh, it's Bauer tonight. I mean, it's you've got the best rotation in oh, your division. Yeah. Oh, it's Alex Wood tonight. I mean, you've got legit guys up and down that rotation. I think it's a, it's a lot of fun to watch so far. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. 
Skinny, switching gears here from Reds uh, across the street to Bengals, you've been at training camp still every day leading up to the season. Um, we talked about it last week, but we were only just a few days into the starting training camp. So now I ask you again, a little extended time to see some of these guys. What has stuck out to you from Bengals training camp? Uh, you want the good or the bad first? I want the bad. Uh, you want the bad. That's what I figured. The bad is the offensive line has just looked overmatched at times when the first team defensive line has been out there. And they've done it. We talked about this a little bit on the last podcast. The five-man defensive front, I'm excited to watch in a real game. I think it's got a chance for some real possibilities to mask the fact they don't have great linebackers and to put, when you go into a base, look, put five of your best defensive players on the field when you go to that that five-man line. Um, that, that's been the one that's, that to me is, is, has stuck out. The offense, it looks at times like you might as well be playing some circus music. And some of it is you've got a lot of moving parts in this new offense and it's just not going to look pretty a weekend into camp. And then you, you couple some of that with, uh, with the offensive line issues. It, it does give you cause for pause. The, the, the positive for me has been just like I said, that, that defensive front. I, I think it's been Sam Hubbard's look great. Carl Lawson's wrecked people. He had one. I wrote about it. And it's almost hard to describe and believe. Cordy Glenn, we, we can agree with this. Cordy Glenn is a big man, right? He's a big man. He is a big man. 345 pounds worth of man. That is fair and accurate. Carl Lawson literally picked him up and threw him five yards backwards when he was rushing the passer the other day and would have killed Andy Dalton, whoever the quarterback on the other team would have been. Would have killed him. He has been an absolute wrecker. Of, of the offensive line so far. It's almost every day he's getting two sacks. And when I say sacks, I always have to put quotations because you can't hit the quarterback and take him to the ground. But if you're in the area at full speed and you pull up, chances are you would have knocked the quarterback down. Yeah, He's in the backfield for tackles for losses. He, I, I did a story on him and I talked to him. He, he wanted to come back better from that knee injury. And, and, you know, you hear guys say that and they hope that. Well, he has. I mean, he come back, he's come back from that ACL very, very well. So, um, I mean, that's I, really encouraging it, because it is. he's a difference maker. He can be. That's it, especially if you're going to that five-man line. Yeah. They're moving him around. They stand him up on the outside at left end. They put him down as a with his hand in the ground at right end. They put him over the, the center guard spot at times to, to kind of basically be a, a, a blitzer, and he's occasionally spun back into, into coverage. Uh, he gives you a guy, if you're a defensive coordinator, that says, I'm going to move him around and get some mismatches created for this guy. When I get the mismatch, he's going to kill somebody. Too often with the Reds and the Bengals, it feels like we're always saying, if this guy reaches his full potential right. and right. Right. At this level, he'll be good enough. But Lawson is a difference maker. He he's a be. he's a star type guy if he really recovers and, and plays as well as you guys seem to think he's looked here in training camp. Yeah, and you couple that with with Sam Hubbard, who came off of a pretty good rookie year, and you hope he takes the jump, and he certainly looks like it. Geno Atkins is still wrecking people. He took a guard the other day. I think it was Christian Westerman. I think doing off the top of my head, he took a guard and literally he took the, the the guard and threw him back into the ball carrier to the point where the quarterback couldn't even hand the ball off. That's not ideal. It's not ideal. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying some bad things about the offensive line. Right, so that, that's the not ideal part. But the ideal part is how how much this defensive front has looked really, really good. I did see the new Madden game recently came out, and someone posted a clip from the game they were playing and said the new Madden is really realistic. And I had Bobby Hart just getting absolutely <laughs> blitzed and ran right past for a sack. Funny, so. funny part is a lot of it hasn't come from Bobby's side, although some of it has. Bobby's had his his moments too, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I, you're I, not making me feel great about that offensive line right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm, 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 a, I'm a little fearful of that of that offensive line, but uh, I, I, you know, may, and maybe, and, and something I'd like to ask Zach Taylor about on Thursday. Uh, it's the last practice before the, they they travel to Kansas City. I mean, is he evaluating the offensive line? They got to work on and need some fixing, or is it? Hey, I'm just going to chalk it up. The defensive lines played that well. I think there's a little bit of both there. Um, 
I, I, but I do think this offensive line's got to get some stuff straight. They got to figure out at left guard. They're they, they're cycling through their fourth guy at left guard, and they still don't have an answer. Update us on the race for the last receiver position, and guy who's going to end up in the practice squad <laughs> that you love. I'm still. He won't be a last receiver. I'm going with my guy Damian Willis. Still. Last chance, you baby. He's my guy. You know, he he was a last chance you guy, but he wasn't there for the reasons that a lot of other guys were there actually. Because I I did double check on that um, in many ways. Because last chance you, some of those guys, it is their last chance. He he actually was trying to go. He he had. A, a, a power five coach tell him, listen, I don't think I'm ready to take you yet out of high school. Go the Juco route. And he's from Mississippi. So he, he went to that school, but last chance you is an interesting, not every person in Juco is well, at least one step la- above the <laughs> state penitentiary. <laughs> last, chance, most of them. last chance you, a chunk of them are. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's still my guy though. He's still my guy through camp. All right. Skitty, sticking with football here, the Pro Football Hall of Fame officially announced on Friday that they will have a special centennial class for 2020. The class will include a record 20 enshrinees consisting of five modern era players, 10 senior inductees, three contributors, and two coaches. Along with celebrating the league's centennial year, Hall of Fame President David Baker said earlier this year that another reason for the extended class in 2020 was to help clear the backlog of worthy players who have yet to have their careers immortalized in Canton. My question is, do you think there are any Bengals players with a legitimate case to make next year's Hall of Fame class? I've always had three, but there's one I'm going to make a real case for. There's three that I really do. Ken Riley, who's one of the all-time leading interceptors in NFL history. I think he ranks fourth all-time. And yeah, he's actually fifth, tied for fifth, fifth. with Charles Woodson. Okay, so there you go. I, I, yeah, I think, I to me, it's amazing that that guy is not in the Hall of Fame. Well, and actually the guy he played with for many years is a better player, and I saw them both growing up, and I was I, I that that was those were my guys. Lamar Parrish is arguably one of the most one of the best corners in NFL history, in my opinion, and was crazy dangerous as a return man in his career. He returned multiple punts for touchdowns, returned a kickoff for touchdowns, returned multiple inter, uh, interceptions for touchdowns, returned a fumble for a touchdown, returned a block field goal for a touchdown. I believe he has nine. I think it's nine non-offensive touchdowns in his. NFL career. He rarely got thrown at. One year, their secondary, granted, we're talking about a different era. 1975, I believe, and Lamar Parrish and Ken Riley were the corners. Tommy Casanova, who was a great player, too, but didn't play long enough. He ended up being a doctor, was a safety. And passer rating, you have to look at, at eras, and we're going to get to a guy in Ken Anderson here in a second. The, 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 their defensive passer rating. Today, if it's in the in the low 80s, you're great. I mean, good, really good quarterbacks, their passer rating is 100, right? Right. Um, defensively, if you're holding a team in the 80s passer rating wise, you're doing something in today's football. So it's, we're talking different eras. They held opponents to a 48.9 passer rating, not completion percentage, passer rating. You did not complete passes on that defense, and it started with Ken Riley and Lamar Parrish, arguably one of, and I'll do this to the day, three to five best cornerback duos in, in NFL history. Riley had such incredible stats. I mean, he was targeted more than Deion Sanders in his career. And sometimes that does lead to more interceptions. Right. And, and uh, I mean, with with uh, 65 career interceptions, he's ahead of Ty Law and Deion Sanders. Yeah. He has three postseason interceptions. Do you feel like his stats are a little inflated because Parrish wasn't being thrown at because they yes. were going after him yeah. a little bit more, I, give him more opportunity? I think that's fair. Ken also, Ken also had a knack for the football. Ken, Ken could jump routes. He was really good at doing that. But I think some of that is... 
it tells you that's how good Lamar Parrish was. People just didn't throw that catch when away. When you look at Ken Riley's stats, it is impossible to believe he's not a Hall of Famer. I agreed, and Lamar Parrish was better. I'm telling yeah. you, Lamar I, Parrish well, was better. I believe it. When you're just looking at the stats, though, it makes sense the way you phrase that, that like, okay, Riley must have racked up some more stats because Parrish was so and intimidating you, to throw at. Like I said, then you add his return skills on top of it, and he yeah. stopped. He was a kickoff returner early in his career when they finally realized he's a great cornerback. He still returned punts, and they took that a little bit away from him as time went on, and you, and you do that with special players. You're not going to run your best corner into the ground as a return guy and being out there as a corner, sure. for goodness sake. So so that got taken away from him a little bit. And Ken Anderson, to me, is, is a no. It, it is such a no-brainer. He, If you want to talk about the guy that brought in the modern passing game era. I know people, you can look back at Johnny Unitas, maybe, and Len Dawson. The, six. the modern passing game, though, started with Bill Walsh as an assistant coach with the Bengals, and it started with Virgil Carter, but the guy who evolved into it and made it work was Ken Anderson. Ken Anderson was the precursor of the West Coast offense. And yes, you can look at his passer rating. I believe it's 77.2 is his career rating. Believe it or not, Andy Dalton is 17th, uh, maybe 19th, it's what it was, 17th, 19th in NFL history and passer rating. I don't think we're going to argue that Andy... I'll argue Andy Dalton's a quality quarterback over most people who think he sucks. Look at some of the numbers. But I'm not going to tell you that Andy Dalton's one of the 19 or 20 best quarterbacks in NFL history, okay? Right. So you got to look at the rating with a grain of salt and when guys played in the era. In the era Ken Anderson played in, he led the league in passing, I believe, four times. He took four different teams to the playoffs, 75, the the 81 team to the Super Bowl. He was an NFL MVP. He was at least a two-time passing champion, maybe a three-time passing champion. There's no excuse. The only thing that he didn't do was win a Super Bowl. And that he kind of came out of that era of quarterbacks that was marked by, did you win a Super, Super Bowl? Bowl? Yeah, I mean, that's really what's keeping him out, right, is that he lost the one opportunity he had. And I think the fact that he took a Bengals franchise to the Super Bowl, he took them, he was a, he was a starting quarterback in the 73 playoff team, starting quarterback on the 75 playoff team, starting quarterback on the 81 team that went to the Super Bowl, starting quarterback on arguably... One of the most explosive offenses in Bengals history, the strike-shortened team of 1982 that went 7-2 and and unfortunately lost a, a playoff game to the Jets at home that they shouldn't have lost. Ken Anderson is, without a question, a Hall of Famer. In fact, he ought to be one of the first five in that veteran group that goes in, and it shouldn't even come down to, to, the, to the nub. And like I said, I would argue Lamar Parrish over Ken Riley, but I could certainly make an argument for both. So, I mean, you you obviously think he should be. Do you think he will be? I do, and I've talked to some people that, that I don't have a Hall of Fame vote. I know some people that, that will be in that well, – I know someone that will be in that room. They think he will be. His name has come up enough times that when you're trying to clear the backlog – I think Ken Anderson is probably in the early conversation of clearing that backlog. I really believe that. Now, normally how they do this veteran list is it's guys who's been up for 20 years or more, right? And I believe that's for, right. I, I think they don't know the criteria. But yeah, but they could have been a Hall of Fame for the last like 20 yes. years or so. So they have one spot designated for yes. those types of guys. But then that committee, the committee votes on those guys, and then usually only one of them gets in per yeah, class. Yeah, correct, correct. This year they're going to do 10 of those yeah, guys. And that's where I think you're going to get you mentioned he's been in the conversation multiple times when it's only one spot available. Right. Now they've got 10 in one year. You would think he's got a pretty decent I, chance. If he doesn't get it now, the door's closed, right? I think it's almost I mean, it has to be closed. done. I, and I can't believe that, that, it would, that when they're doing this to clear the backlog, I think they got to be doing it with Ken Anderson, guys like Ken Anderson in mind, guys that people have argued for years should be a Hall of Famer. And like you mentioned, that when they get to that one – you maybe finish second or third or fourth on that list. You're still in the conversation. You just don't get the final push to get in. I think this time, if you're second, third, or fourth, you are going to get. If you're 10th, you're going to get in. 
I, I have a hard time believing he's not one of those. Yeah, if he's deeper than tenth, man, that's I can't. I, that's a tough argument. It seems like. Yeah, I, I know we're we're probably biased because of where we live, but still, uh, I, it's I know, you look at the stats and it's just hard to believe. I, there are other quarterbacks. I know Dan Fouts, who's a Hall of Famer, and Dan would argue. Dan's numbers probably deserve it, but Dan didn't really. If you want to look at, at overall team success, Dan had good years and the Chargers had good teams. All I know is in the 1981 AFC Championship game, and yes, I know it was 59 below because I was sitting there freezing my ass off. I just know that Ken Anderson outplayed Dan Fouts that day, and Dan Fouts admits it. He said, look, I threw a wobbly football. Kenny threw a tight spiral. He, he cut through the wind. I couldn't cut through the wind. Ken Anderson's a Hall of Famer. It just, he, 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 I know people can look, well, it's pasture rating. I get it. It's a different, it was a different, a way different era. In that era, too, Isaac Curtis could get literally mugged coming off the line of scrimmage. Mel Blunt would tackle him coming off the line. He would chop him coming off the line. They made a rule in the NFL called the Isaac Curtis rule to stop defensive backs. The now five-yard chuck rule that we see, that's a direct result of the era that Ken Anderson played in, which was the Isaac Curtis era. Um, it was just a different game, obviously, and he excelled in that era. That That's why... I, and I do this with all Hall of Fames. It's hard to look at Ron. I look at, did you dominate your era? Whatever that era was. Was it seven years, eight years? Did you dominate? Or were you a great player? Ken Anderson was a great player. Four playoff teams in a nine-year span. In a time where only four teams made the playoffs from each division. That's pretty good. Yeah. The- and the Pittsburgh Steelers were in your division, and they were the team of the 70s. So they battled them. And, and again, I... I know it, it may sound biased, but since I, I think if you talk to other quarterbacks who played in that era, other people who covered that era, they'll go to bat for Ken Anderson among the 10. Yeah, that next to last point you made isn't a, a new theory or concept, but it is a good one and, and one that I think applies across all sports. When you start talking about the best evers, the Hall of Famers, the GOATs, all those types of conversations, it has to be done talking about era versus era. How much did you dominate your era? What did your stats compare to the guys in your era? Because sports change and evolve Correct. so much over time. And not to backtrack on the baseball, but Harold Baines. When I watched, I grew up watching Harold Baines. I'm familiar with, with every probably year that Harold Baines played. Always thought of Harold Baines as pretty good hitter. That guy I like really good. Never thought of Harold Baines as a Hall of Famer. Right. I just didn't. And I don't think anybody else did. So I think in this case, I, I, I'll, I'll be very, very surprised if Ken Anderson doesn't make it. And I'll be disappointed if Lamar Parrish and Ken Riley aren't at least in the conversation. Is there any other names out there across the NFL that aren't? Yeah, I'd related? have to look. That's a great question. Honestly, I, I don't have... have Nothing I, that stands to out yeah, to you. Off the top of my head, I'm sure there are a couple that, that would. Probably some linemen along the, the, the way that have gotten kind of pushed to the wayside. Um, and again, hopefully for those guys that, that maybe you look back, yeah, they should be in too. And they get in this time because that's what they're trying to clear the backlog. When I saw this last week, I thought to myself, Ken Anderson, this has got to be an automatic now for him to get in the hall of fame. It's silly for him not to. All right, Skinny, start of something new here. Leading up to the start of college football season, we're going to be checking in across the region with beat writers at different camps to get a feel for what to expect from the local teams. And we start our tour at Camp Higher Ground in West Harrison, Indiana, where Chad Brendel is standing by for day seven of preseason camp with the Cincinnati Bearcats. Chad, Cincinnati, coming off an 11-2 campaign last season, was picked by media members to finish second in the AAC behind UCF this year. The Bearcats returned key players on both sides of the ball, so we'll put you on the spot to start. Who is Cincinnati's best player on each side of the ball, in your opinion? Um, this is a tricky one because if I'm going to give you the honest answer, it's not going to it's not going to impress a lot of people. But the best player is James Smith, who's the best punter in the country. Uh, finished second in the Ray Guy Award last year. 
Um, he, he, the way he can flip field, and for a team that wants to run the football, play defense, control the clock, to have a punter that can pop one 50, 60 yards at any given moment, uh, he's their most talented guy. Uh, but, you know, the popular opinion is going to be Desmond Ritter or Michael Warren, uh, one of the offensive guys. But the honest answer is probably James Smith. Well, go ahead and give us, on the offensive side and the defensive side, who would you say? Offense is going to be Des Ritter. Um, the, the question will be, is he ready to take that next step? Um, is he ready to, to completely control the offense, push the ball down the field a little bit more, um, give them a little bit more of a, 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 a balanced offense, so they don't have to hand it, you know, you go back to that UCLA game last year, they handed the ball to Mike Warren 35 times. Uh, you probably want a little bit more balance than that, even though, you know, the running game is, is, is their bread and butter. If they can take that next step with Ritter, get a little bit more offense in the passing game, then this offense really becomes dangerous, and it's a team that can beat you by scoring a bunch of points, uh, as well as being able to, to play stout defense. Um, Defensively, that's a that's a tough one. I'd probably go. Their most talented guy is, is definitely James Wiggins, the safety. Uh, there's a good chance you'll. This is probably his last year in Clifton. Uh, he's a junior, redshirt junior. My guess is his name will be in the NFL draft in the spring. Uh, just a, a big time playmaker. He essentially ended three games last year with an interception. One of them, uh, the pick six against SMU in overtime the walk-off pick six that you don't get to see very often in college football. But as far as most talented, it's definitely got to be James Wiggins on the defensive side of the ball. Right, let's go back to offense for a second, Chad. Last year's offense much better than the train wreck of, of 2017. Scored a little over 200 points more. They return a lot of those guys. You mentioned a couple of them in in, uh, in Mike Warren and, and Des Ritter. What's the biggest storyline, though, on offense? Is it trying to find a, 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 a consistent receiver or two? I would say right now, because of the, the denial of James Hudson's waiver, it's probably the offensive line. They've got some talent there in terms of how they're going to fill that spot. They're moving Chris Ferguson, who was a starter last year at right tackle. They're moving him to left tackle. Who steps in at right tackle is the big question for this team uh, as we go through camp. It's a three-man race right now between uh, Vince McConnell Lorenz Metz, the six foot ten, three hundred and forty pound German, uh, and a and a guy that played basketball at University of Miami, uh, and Darius Harper. Uh, they've been rotating. Each guy gets a day, uh, and they've gone through two rotations. To my untrained eye, I think Harper's probably been the best of the three. He's in, you talk Metz at six ten, three thirty. Harper's six foot eight, three twenty five. So you've got some great size there. At that right tackle spot, you're going to want somebody that's really good in the run game. I think it's going to be either Harper or Mets. Um, but, but that's the big question is how the line comes together. Now, receiver also, you're looking for a guy to step up. And, and I think that guy has kind of stepped up so far from spring football in, and carried it over into uh, camp here at higher ground. And that name to watch would be Alec Pierce, uh, six foot four. Runs up 4-4-40 as a 42-inch vertical leap. Just an incredible athlete, and, he, and he's rounded out his game as a receiver. You're seeing him do a lot more. Uh, when he came in as a freshman last year, it was basically just, you know, 
run go routes, and now you're seeing him run the full route tree, really give Des Ritter kind of a deep threat on the outside. And, you know, Skinny mentioned the improvement of last year's offense, but on the defensive side, I think you really saw Luke Fickle's handprint on this team. You know, they allowed 158 fewer points than they did in 2017, led the AAC in total defense, scoring defense, and run defense. They returned seven starters on that side of the ball. Chad, what's the biggest storyline there? Is it again up front trying to replace that defensive line? Yeah, you lost. You returned seven starters. Three of the, the, the four guys you lost were on the defensive line, two of them in the NFL, and Cortez Broughton and Marquise Copeland. It's going to be more defensive tackle by committee. Um, Broughton and Copeland played probably 80% of the snaps last year. Now you're looking at uh, Elijah Ponder, Jabari Taylor, Marcus Brown, and Curtis Brooks, and you'll probably see a pretty even split there uh, of snaps, probably you know, 60-40 starters to backups, uh, Taylor and um, Ponder look like they're, they're the guys that are going to get the nod uh, with the starting unit. And it, fortunately, those guys have been really good in practice uh, here at higher ground. Now, you, you're not sure if that's because the offensive line is having issues, but the, the, the guys up front have been effective here at camp. And then a name to watch taking over at that strong side defensive end is a kid named Maje Sanders who is a, uh, a true sophomore out of Florida, and he's got a chance to be really, really good uh, to help, you know, kind of anchor that defensive line. Is, is there one thing that, that's con- most concerning as you go into this year at any place? Or in, in, you know, we're talking about tangible things of players. Is it maybe just expectations being a little bit different? Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to to now become a consistent, you know, they showed – what the high end of a, a Luke Fickle coach team looked like last year. Now you're going to have to deal with that, and you're going to have to deal with it with a schedule that, especially at the beginning of the year, is very, very difficult. You start at UCLA at home, Ohio State on the road. You get a Miami team that's, that's struggling right now and looking to find a quarterback. That one you can, you know, feel pretty confident about. But Marshall? Up, are you going to be coming out of – hello? Yeah, Marshall's going to be tough. Yeah, at Marshall, and then you got UCF at home and Houston on the road. Those are your first six games. So they're going to have to come out of the gate firing. Uh, they're not going to be able to play into a rhythm kind of like they did last year. Uh, they're going to have to have it together and, and be right on top of their game from the get-go and all the way through the first six weeks of the season. Well, let's put you on the spot one last time before we let you go again. You mentioned that tougher schedule that they're going to face. Last year they finished 11-2. and Vegas set the over-under for this team at six wins, which both Skinny and I talked about a few weeks ago. We thought was too low. We think they're definitely going over. What, where, what record do you think this UC team finishes with? I think if things go the way they should go and this team's able to stay healthy, I think this is a 9-3 and three team. Uh, the road games, you're at Ohio State, you're at Memphis, you're at Houston – those are the two best teams in the West Division of the American. Um, you get both of them on the road, so that's difficult. But I think 9-3 and three with the talent they have should be a pretty reasonable expectation for this team with a chance. You get a good, you know, you get a good bowl opponent, you can, you can pull, pull off that 10th win in a bowl game. And I think that would be a, a big-time success is to get back to double-digit wins 
uh, with this team based on the schedule and how difficult it is, especially through the first six games. Last question. You mentioned uh, James Hudson. It's been well documented, his his journey trying to get a, a waiver for this year. It's, it's been denied. But UC did get a couple of players uh, granted immediate eligibility by the NCAA last week. Darian Beavers, Tyreek McDonald. Well, was that expected? Beavers is from uh, from Coleraine High School, played at UConn, McDonald from Alabama. Were, were those two expected, and what, what kind of a, a punch can they add? Yeah, those two. Beavers was moving home because his, his girlfriend was is about to give birth. Um, to their first child. So that was the basis for the waiver on that. That one was pretty expected. McDonald, Alabama cooperated with everything. Um, what those two give you, first off, they give you two really, really good special teams players. Um, with McDonald, it gives you somebody to kind of start to fill in uh, looking long-term when James Wiggins leaves. You're going to need somebody to step into that safety spot. Uh, Beavers, he's going to push Jarrell White at the sniper position. Skinny, this kid is six foot four, 230, 225, 30 pounds, and runs like a safety and hits like a linebacker. So there, he's, he's going to be really difficult to keep off the field. Uh, and, and I like what I've seen from McDonald uh, through the first six practices. Good nose for the football. Uh, gives them, you know, another talented guy with, with two years of experience at Alabama on the back end of that defense. So depth it really is the biggest thing that they provide. And, and I, I just think Jarrell White is, is a really, really good football player. Yep. Was second on the team in tackles last year. Only had five starts. He was second on the team in tackles. It's tough to get him off the field. But, man, a kid like Beavers, you look at him and you just see an NFL-style, that hybrid linebacker, and, and I think you're going to see him on the field quite a bit as we go through the season. All right, we're squeezing you right up to the uh, start of practice there today, so we'll let you get to making some hashtag content for the good folks at Bearcat Journal. Of course, you can find all of Chad's daily reports at BearcatJournal.com. Chad, we really appreciate all your time, bud. Thanks. Thanks, guys. See you later. Thanks, Chad. It's been a little bit since we talked college basketball, but Xavier's basketball team left Wednesday morning for Spain. The Musketeers are set to play three games in Barcelona and Madrid over the next week. Travis Steele's squad returns four talented veterans in Quentin Gooden, Tyreek Jones, Najee Marshall, and Paul Scruggs to go along with two new graduate transfers and five freshmen that are expected to fill various roles. Skinny, what are you most interested to see while Xavier's basketball team is in Spain? I I think how those newcomers mix and what, what, maybe initial role they play from Tandy to Deontay Miles, and especially the two grad transfers. I mean, I, I want to see how they they fit into it. I I think this has got a chance to be a fun, exciting, good team, and you're not going to be the end product here in Spain, but it's a, it's certainly a good place to start. And, and for them, I think it's a, it's a benefit when you're trying to mesh all those different new parts together. You know what you got coming back in, 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 in Scruggs and, and Gooden and, and Tyreek and, and Najee. Um, it's a, it's, that's a great place to start, right? That's a great core of four. Uh, but you, you're going to need, we talk about, you're going to need at least one of the two grad transfers. Probably Carter would be the guy, um, to, to show that you can, he can be a scorer. And then what can Tandy give you off the bench? What can the, the, I'm drawing the blank, the kid from Tommy or Bishop. Yeah. 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 What can he give you? What, what, 
what can Deontay Miles give you? He's a project, right? Um, can, can he can he show some shot blocking ability right off the bat? That that to me is the most interesting. You follow them way more than I do. So what are you most interested in? So it would have definitely been the Kiki Tandy Damir Bishop battle because I again you're going to Spain for these summer games and and yeah it's nice for the veterans to get some run in. You got ten practices in and everything like that, but you know what they're giving you. You're not going there to learn anything about those guys, really. So I don't care what Najee Marshall or Paul Scruggs or Quentin Gooden do while you're in Spain. However, that that Kiki-Damir battle, you're going to rely on one of those two guys to give you something serious. And it's likely sort of sixth or seventh man minutes at that guard spot. It's going to be key minutes. It's going to be a lot of minutes. And you're going to need some shooting and scoring pop from one of those two guys. So I'm still not sure which one is kind of in front. I thought initially it was definitely going to be Kiki. I think Damir has evened that up in some ways. I still think Kiki is probably the more solid of the two so far, but that's something I'm going to be watching. It was going to be the most interesting thing to me until we went through these 10 practices, and I expected Deontay Miles, the Walton Verona product, to be a guy who was a definite redshirt candidate. I thought... I mean, there's no chance he's going to contribute on we, we, this year's we, team. We've talked about that. That's probably what he was going to do, right? Yeah. But I mean, he's only 200 pounds. He came in at 200 pounds at 6'11". There's just no way that he was going to be ready to contribute. After watching him through 10 practices, I'm just not so sure that's the case. I mean, part of it is the other freshman big man, Daniel Ramsey, hasn't practiced yet. He has knee issues. He's not going to play in Spain. So that's definitely given Deontay more of a chance and also probably made the coaches think about, well... He's the lone rim protector, right? Right, but, yeah. but also I, I don't think they worry about it that as much as they worry about, okay, let's say, yeah, yeah, we've got a, a, a starter in Tyreek Jones who we know is a stud, and yeah, we've got Jason Carter at the four who we could slide down and play a little bit of small ball. He's probably the fifth starter, right, Jason Carter? Yeah, he'll yeah. start at the yeah. four, I would assume. And then Zach Fremantle is probably the next big man, but what happens if one of those guys get injured? Then you're in sort of a, a scrum for minutes where it's like, who who do we have if, if you redshirted Deontay and, and Daniel Ramsey isn't able to play? So... I'm interested to see, does Deontay Miles flash enough in Spain to really make this? What what did you see of him in practice that you liked? Really just solid, being solid. I thought it was going to be, okay, yeah, he'd block a shot occasionally or have a dunk where he caught an oop three feet above the rim where it's like, oh, he's pretty athletic and coordinated for a big guy. But I thought picking up all this stuff because he was still a raw player even at Walton Verona where he was adjusting to learning playing in an offense and playing in a defensive system. He's picked that stuff up way better than I ever expected him to for one. And then for two... He's not flying out of plays, trying to block too many shots. He's not getting pushed got, around as much great, as I thought I think he's got he great timing on, on, on blocking shots. I think he's got terrific. He and does, he's got that crazy. He, the wingspan is crazy. It's, you can't teach that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's staying in position. He's just being more solid than I expected him and not trying to do too much. Yeah, I did expect the one that you said. I, you know, th- There's no question he is, he is very thin. And I, I thought that he would get shoved and you would and see he and he probably will you'll get buried on uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get buried on the block and have no chance against some I mean guys, right? don't get me wrong when Tyreek Jones wants a rebound in practice right. he gets a rebound Correct. but that goes for Tyreek Jones against most big That's East big fact. men too yes. so it's sometimes hard to tell yes. um, he's been much better and much farther along than I ever expected so I'll say I'm not expecting him to have a significant make a significant impact on this year's team yet but I am interested to see in Spain does he make this decision hard on the coaches by saying I can help you right now. Yeah. Because if so, they'll come back into practice really with a, a keen eye on what Deontay Miles can I, give them because it's a possibility. No, I think, I, I think that's what a, what a summer trip like this does. It gives you a chance to open some eyes or for the coaches to go, eh, maybe not ready yet. We'll see if he comes back when the fall practice starts and maybe shows us a little more there. But it's, it's like a lot of things. You get an extra few, you get extra 10 practices, as you mentioned. You get a handful of then game competition to, 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 to see. 
And if a guy can open your eyes and you open a coach's eyes, good for you. If not, all right, we'll see you in the fall. One other funny thing I will kind of say is you you needed, last year watching this team, you needed someone that wanted to be a killer, someone that wanted to be a scorer, someone that wanted to take shots. Now all of a sudden, not only do, do the veterans kind of have that feeling of, okay, yeah, we know how to do this. We're ready to take yep. the big shots and all that. But you've also got a couple of freshmen you brought in this year and Kiki <laughs> Kenny and Damir Bishop who are not shy at no, all to hoist that. that thing up. I, I can believe so it. So the couple of times they've actually got running up and down live on five-on-five five action – Man, it's hard to get that ball worked around the perimeter at all before a three-pointer is going up. So I will be interested to see how they I'm share the I'm going to guess that gets rained in a little bit at some point, yeah, right? And I think you'd much rather have to rain it yeah. in than vice versa and draw it out. Yeah, right. No, You've right. got uh, freshmen who are very confident in their abilities and really think they can score. I think you can teach them better decision-making. I mean, what, what, what do we talk about Quentin Gooden for a short period of time? Or not even a short period of time. Yep, shoot, all shoot, of last shoot, season shoot, a lot shoot the basketball, yeah. right? Try to score. Go score the basketball. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Kiki Tandy is not afraid of score. I mean, he had to do a big load of that at, at, at UHA. No, so. and Damir Bishop probably is a, a more of a gunner than Kiki was. <laughs> so, I mean, those two guys, it really was funny, even yesterday when I was at practice, just watching them hoist them up. I mean, before so they, they, even get a touch. Are they playing together then, I'm assuming? Like on, on, five, on the same side? Yeah, when they go five on five, are they playing uh, together? Usually those two have been matched up against it's each, each other, other okay. although yeah. uh, yesterday they were paired up together a little bit. So it's, so it's, it was whoever got the outlet pass, it did, did pretty much finish the uh, pretty much finish the break? Yeah, it's been it's been interesting to watch those two mi- mix with the other guys because they do have that level of confidence that we're not backing down. We, we can play with anyone. So I will be interested to watch how they uh, mesh as well. And, and you can watch, right? It's on Flow. Is it Flow.com? Flow Hoops. FlowHoops.com, right? FlowHoops.com. Yeah. There'll be three games. They uh, they are available on demand after they're over, too. So if you can't watch them at noon on Monday go. and Wednesday, you will be able to catch them when you get home from work. There you go. And, and your NKU Norse are traveling, too, right? They're going to the Virgin Islands. Yeah, the Norse. Uh, I think they just got to St. Thomas yesterday. I believe that's right. And uh, there, there's some social media stuff going on there. I do, I do one, thing I, the one thing I will say is I think these are beneficial, and especially when you're trying to mesh new guys in like Xavier's doing, and in NKU's case, with a new head coach and a new system, I think these are extremely beneficial. Yeah, I think that you're exactly right. That is the key is you do it when you either have a bunch of new guys you got to mix in or a new system you're trying to do. It, it's not something you do with a, a team of seven or eight returners and you know exactly what to expect out of everyone. Because <laughs> they're going to be partying on their own time. Well, they're going to be doing that or they're going to be competing way too hard, way too early well, in the year. Point. By yeah. the time you get to uh, January or February, you're going to be dead. Good point. All right, Skinny. A 23-year-old Nashville man who went to a Sounds game for fun with friends last August is now signed with the Oakland Athletics. Nathan Patterson decided to try the speed pitch challenge at the Sounds game and threw 96 miles per hour, a feat that even surprised the 22-year-old at the time who hadn't played competitive baseball since high school. In February, the A's reached out and had discussed the possibility of signing Patterson, at which point he joined a men's league, and then a few weeks ago, he went viral after hitting 96 miles per hour again on a speed pitch at a Rockies game. At that point, the A's jumped on the opportunity to sign him to a contract. My question is, what do you have on baseball teams discovering 22-year-old fireballers on social media? Hey, any way you can discover a guy, man, I got no problem with it. The, the thing is, I think everybody thought that, that this whole thing came out of that Rockies experience, that that's where suddenly the A's, they, they, he'd been on their radar for a little bit since that, that Nashville game. And maybe for them it was, eh, maybe this is a little fluky. Maybe we should bring him in. Let's not do it yet. Then you see it again and you're thinking, well, okay, maybe this is legit. Let's let's try him out. And just because you throw 96 miles an hour doesn't isn't going to make you a great pitcher. But it's a nice place to start, right? And he did it off of flat ground. Yes, I know he did it with a crow hop. Um, 
Ain't many outfielders chucking it in 96 miles an hour off of a crow hop either. So 96 is pretty legit. Um, I don't know what his mechanics are like. I'm sure they don't either. For them, it's probably this is a very low risk situation that also gets you a little pub on top of it. Not that I don't, I don't even know if that matters in that case, but it does. It shows, yeah, it's a minor it shows, baseball. Look, the, the A's have always been that cutting edge, right? Since Ever since Moneyball came out. And, and let's face it, as much as people made fun of it, Awful lot of teams them. following it, and yeah. an awful lot of teams starting to follow that that method of of building teams. So yeah, I I, I got no no problem with this. I think it's actually pretty pretty good. Um, you know, maybe maybe at some point, maybe they'll find a fourteen year old kid who had an arm, a broken arm, and it got repaired. Oh wait, that was the rookie rookie of the yeah, year, rookie of the year. Yeah, yeah. funky butt loving. Yeah, and then what was it? The end of the movie, his arm his arm stopped working. Right? He yeah, had to throw the slow the slow floater. changer, the floater. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's what, what's this cat's name? Patterson? Nathan? Maybe that's what Nathan's going to have to learn the floater when all is said and done. Yeah. So I, I love the fact of how 2019 the story is. I mean, this yes. kid. No, no, that's great. That's great. Because it wasn't just like, like you said, that they saw the video and were like, oh, yeah, we got to have him. No, this kid worked a social media plan over the last Absolutely. nine months. Absolutely. He and his brother. Been, he, they've been going around to all these ballparks, posting pictures of him at different speed pitches, hitting 94, 95, trying to go viral. And once he did earlier at the Sounds game in Nashville, he got a little interest from the A's. They said, hey, here's an agent. Talk to this guy. Start working out. Join a men's team. All this stuff. The guy then started really working on it as mechanics. And the agent who who sort of signed him and said, we watched him throw. And all of a sudden, he busts out a curveball that was really impressive on like this fifth pitch. And we were like, this guy actually has something. It's not just yeah, the right. fact that he can launch a 96-mile-per-hour fastball. Because we got to talk about this, first of all. I'm not I saying— I think it's incredible. I— I think it's incredible. 96 is impressive. I'm not saying there are a bunch of guys running around that can throw 96. But the, uh, this dude, the bunch of guys who are running around throwing 96, where do you think they are right now for the most of them? Pitching somewhere professionally, yes? Uh, no, yes? I, I, yes? 96 is a lot. 96 is a lot. But I do not think a dude crow hopping, like, I don't think that's unheard of. I don't think only major leaguers can throw 96 off of a crow hop. I think there are a ton of dudes who can probably hit, like, 92, 93 off of a crow hop. Mm. I, they, 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 you saw the, the, the throw on Center was it last week, the week before Mike Trout threw one from, from the outfield, and they clocked it at 98 miles an hour. And that seemed like it was pretty darn hard for an outfielder. Right. And yes. That's, yeah, but that's also in a game situation, you're trying to make a play. That's not like I'm winding up, getting ready, trying for a All speed right. pitch on perfect conditions with a crow hop. I guarantee you Mike Trout hits 100 in that situation. Don't crap on my man's 96. I'm not crap You are. Yeah, oh, yeah, you are. Well, no, here's the thing about him is that he can clearly actually pitch because, one, you wouldn't sign him a contract if you wouldn't have seen he could actually pitch a little bit. Yeah, right. Two, he went in, he, th- he threw strikes, he kept the ball down according to what the scout said, he, he threw a nice curveball. So I'm not saying this guy doesn't deserve it. I'm just saying I don't think a guy getting, I'm not that impressed by a guy crow hopping and throwing 95 in a speed pitch. Again, off flat ground though, no rubber, nothing to push off I of. don't think that helps you that much. A crow hop helps you 10 times more than a mound yeah, does. I don't know, man. If you Unless you have great mechanics. That's what like, I was going to say. Most if your mechanics are, are good. But most guys throwing in a speed pitch do not have One thing I'd like to see, and, and I didn't follow up because I didn't know you were putting this on there, and, and I, you probably haven't looked this up either. I, I'd like to see what he's been clocked at since he's pitched in a game or in a game setting. I wonder what it's been. Do you know? Yeah, I did. You know, I didn't That's see okay. that, but I think he was hitting. I'm sure it was legit. Yeah, I'm mound. sure it was yeah. legit. Okay. Um, and the weird thing is the dude had played high level high school baseball, never got the opportunity to play in college and wasn't throwing any anywhere close to this hard when he finished up his high school baseball career. He was a decent pitcher, but not no, I, throwing it's, in the 90s. It's funny. There, there's, a, there's a kid I saw this year from, uh, from Ryle who's going to Louisville, Evan Webster. And he was, I was doing public address uh, for a tournament game. 
and another team was getting ready to play them. Brought one of those little. They had a little um, speed speed oh, gun guns, thing. Yeah. yeah, and he was hitting eighty nine. And I'm watching him. I'm going. He's hitting eighty nine without using any part of his body. And he wasn't like overthrowing. It wasn't like he was. You, you look at it, you, sometimes you look at a guy. You're like, man, that guy's just his, all he, shoulder. He, he, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, he's, he's going to blow his whole upper side out. But he was throwing with pretty much upper body. And I kept looking, and thinking. And his coach is a good coach. So I'm sure they've worked mechanically with him, but it's it's different. Plus, he's going to mature as he gets through his teens. I'm looking at a guy like that going, man, he can get himself another five, six, maybe seven miles an hour, maybe more. And maybe that's what it was with this guy. It's just maybe maybe he just didn't have great mechanics, didn't use all of it. And now suddenly, suddenly, maybe he physically matured. I've seen guys, do you see guys add miles an hour to their fastballs? They've gotten older. Well, I think that is because I did the same thing where I was like, got done pitching and I was known as someone who couldn't, I was slow, slower and slowest. I didn't have a fastball. I had a straight ball when I played in high school. <laughs> and then a couple years later in college, you know, you, you mature a little bit later, yeah, sure, you get right, a little bit stronger right. and all of a sudden you do speed pitches and like I'm throwing 10 miles an hour harder yeah. than I was in high school. How was that like, possible? That's kind of funny. But like, I do think pitching is so much and, and just throwing a baseball in general is so much about like your core muscles no doubt. legs and stuff like that that when you do get a little bit stronger later on in life maybe even a little dad type strength that does help you with throwing a ball yeah and and that's where you know good for this kid I you know and again good for the A's you're right it is so 2019 that they, they may have discovered their next great starting pitcher off a of viral video and the fact that you're right it was a it was a complete campaign to get his name out there and, yeah, and they did the it and they did it like i think there are more more people out there who have this ability who are as physically gifted as this dude who if they worked this exact same social media campaign they would be in the pros yeah no I, like i think that and, is and, absolutely a thing and i would say if you went to a speed pitch and you had a day where you shot you threw 88 or 89 you just don't put that up right <laughs> oh of course nobody knows you were there yeah i'm sure you impressed the people there even hitting 88 or 89 but you're not going to put it up so let's just put up the best of right is there another the only other sport i think you could really do this with is if you had an nfl kicker that's what, exactly what i was thinking an exactly. nfl kicker could do the same thing but i don't think like no one is going to watch you because you have a 48 inch vertical well, we have all these dunk correct. contest winners correct. that aren't nba guys we have three point contest winners that are nba guys that are way better than the yes. nba players at those individual skills baseball um the pitching thing is unique i don't think like a guy maybe if you went you and know, hit a bunch I, of home runs yeah, yeah, home the only run thing I think of is, is if a guy maybe got shot in a hotel room and came back and got a bat made called wonder boy and and joined a team in like, like his 30s maybe something like that right <laughs> i mean that's possible right yeah yeah that I seems mean, I, I might have, write that down. So I, I might make. I might write a, a book about script, that. Yeah, I, might, right. yeah, maybe, I mean, if somebody had like natural, t- call it the natural. We'll make. We should make that into a movie. That's right. We'll make that into a movie. The natural. Wonder who we could get to star in that. But no, I, you're right. No, in fact, the Bengals have, have done that a couple of times. Jonathan Brown, um, who was a soccer player at Louisville uh, and Kentucky, I think he was a soccer player at Kentucky. Then went to Louisville, played soccer, kicked a little bit on the football team, like a kickoff guy. They brought him in, and he had a huge leg. And actually, last year, he got a chance to kick a little bit in games, and you're like, this dude's pretty good. I mean, he's the first time you saw him, mechanically, he was a he was a five-ring circus, and then they kind of kept him around. Um, he came back another year, and he's actually, I think he's in a camp this year for somebody. So, I mean, I think you're right. I think kicker's the one that I, that you could maybe unearth a guy. I need a quarterback to uh, get an NFL contract <laughs> from a punt-passing kick competition. Hey, Andy Reid won one once. People forget that. Andy Reid looked like he was about ninety. Look, like he was about nine feet taller than everybody else in that punt pass and kick contest. But he did win one. So there we go. <laughs> he did. All right. Well, thank Chad Bendel from Bearcat Journal. Uh, thanks to him for his reports. We'll uh, talk some more college football with uh, another area beat writer or guest next week as we make our way around camps for Ohio State, Miami. 
uh, Kentucky, and we'll probably revisit UC here before the season starts. For Rick Brewing, I'm Richard Skinner. This has been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly potpourri edition, and it's presented by Joseph Chevrolet.